0: the vedic influence to the west how india's gurus altered the cultural and religious landscape welcome to the vital veda show where we explore the realms of health consciousness spirituality and the veda the veda are the laws of nature and from the veda comes ayurveda which is health the the science of life and longevity and stapachya veda vedic architecture and meditation yoga gandharva veda the sound of nature all these aspects of the veda and today we are joined with the amazing philip goldberg who's done extensive research on how these vedic sciences influenced the west so you're going to enjoy this conversation and for those who are joining the wild veda podcast for first time or New to it? Welcome. My name is Dylan Smith. I'm an Ayurvedic practitioner and educator based in Sydney, but travel around. And I'm so blessed to interview these amazing people. Philip Goldberg has just interviewed so many people, so many "quote unquote" gurus and people who have had influence on bringing Vedic culture not only to the West but really expanding it in the world. And he's done a wonderful recount. So we're going to get into that. If you enjoy these type of conversations. Subscribe, leave a review, really love to hear from you and check out Instagram Vital Vader where we share a bit more knowledge. We have a newsletter which you can sign up to where we send out occasionally and we give a bit more knowledge. We give some detail, we share about some events, whether it's online or in person. And we give some special offers as well of things that we release, whether it's products, some herbal formulations or certain wisdom sessions and immersions or retreats not not only from us but from other educators in the field of the veda and other healers and people who are offering really authentic stuff because in vital veda we're really about authenticity and purity of knowledge and this is a relevant conversation of what we talk about of, of how when this ancient vedic wisdom which came from the east comes to the west how you have that flexibility that dynamism of how accessible do you make it? How much do you shift it? But of course, for us, it's really, really important to maintain authenticity and purity for many reasons, including potency of the healing and the wisdom or whatever it is, being one of them. So check out Vital VitalVader in all its areas, newsletter. Check out the other episodes of this podcast. There's so many awesome things that we talk about. And if you want to work with me as a Ayurvedic health practitioner, you can also see that on VitalVader.com.au. And... Let me know what you think. Enjoy the show. Good day to you, Phil. Nice to see you. Thanks for joining on the Vital Vader podcast. I'm loving all the books in the background. Specifically, I can <laughs> clearly see a Yogananda book written by you and the American Veda, which I picked up recently, which triggered me. And uh,
1: another one, <laughs> Face Up. This is ah, the yes, free advertising of uh, <laughs> podcasts.
0: Yeah. <laughs> That one, I can't see as much. But yeah, Philip Goldberg is the author and co-author of numerous books, a public speaker, workshop leader, spiritual counselor, meditation teacher, and ordained interfaith minister. He co-hosts the Spiritual Matters podcast, leads American Veda India tours, conducts online courses and workshops, and blogs regularly. I'm excited to hear about these American Veda India tours because I'm a big fan of Yatra, which is a pilgrimage into the holy and energetically charred spaces of anywhere in the world but of uh, me personally I've been doing that in India perhaps most out of anywhere else and I'm excited to hear about your things which we'll talk about later and I would like to just ask first of all what is an ordained interfaith minister? What does that involve?
1: Well it's uh, it's not a title that honestly I employ very much in, in my life but about 20 some odd years ago I decided I, I was informally counseling people on their spiritual lives. And um, and I thought I, I could use some proper training and um, credentialing. And I thought I, I wanted to be able to help people who are on all kinds of paths and uh, belief systems and methodologies and so forth. And so uh, other than the ones I'm most familiar with, so uh, becoming an interfaith minister meant uh, schooling myself in various traditions and uh, counselling methods and so forth. But it's not like I have a congregation or anything like that. I never aspire to such a thing.
0: Sure. And the, the clients you get or the people that come to you for guidance, are they kind of those who are, classify themselves under a faith or practice under a faith, but perhaps not so orthodox and strict, because I'd imagine that, for example, an orthodox Jew, orthodox Christian, orthodox Muslim would see interfaith and like, nah, I ain't going there.
1: (laughs) Well, not only that, they wouldn't be drawn to me um, unless, and this has happened, they were disenchanted and struggling with their, usually the uh, tradition of their birth
0: um,
1: or an adopted affiliation with a group a sect a cult and you know it, and if they're uh, feeling at odds or struggling with doubt then they might find their way to me and that's happened on a few occasions but uh-huh. most people who, who want some spiritual guidance go within the scope of of yeah. their uh, favored tradition uh, and institution those who want to explore more widely might be drawn to someone like me.
0: Yeah, beautiful. And the first question we usually ask on the show, Phil, is, what did you do this morning? What is your Dhinacharya? <laughs> or what have you done today? Morning? well, it's,
1: it's, uh, This morning was Sunday in the U.S. And um, I was up quite early and I sat in my uh, to do my usual uh, morning meditation and afterward I rested and actually dozed off again and when I woke up I said well it's Sunday I could use a little mini retreat so I did some stretching and some breathing of you know traditional yogic styles and then meditated again and uh, it was uh, a good morning. So you asked at the right time.
0: <laughs> it sounds very regenerating. So I was recently doing karma which is Ayurvedic Detox and Rejuvenation Program in South India. And I went to the local, just a very small library of people leaving books behind at the clinic. And I came across this book, American Veda. And I thought, oh, I don't know. It seems a bit cheesy, the title or something. I don't know. And then I had a guy next to me say, "No, it's really good." So I started oh, reading I'm it.
1: Delighted, were you in Kerala?
0: <laughs> no, I was at the Raju Clinic in Hyderabad.
1: Hyderabad.
0: Yes. And uh, anyway, so I j- I just to, this is what I want to talk about. It essentially about the Vedic influence on the West, although it's see, Philip has conducted a, a very extensive research and shared this overview of the remarkable influence of India's Vedic culture to the Western culture. And although this book is called American Veda, I really think it absolutely applies and relates to other areas of the West, especially Australia and Europe.
1: Yeah, I've been asked about that, if I may cut in. I focused my research on America because, you know, it's what I lived through and what I experienced and what's, you know, obviously accessible to me. And I'm often asked, does the same thing happen in Europe? Does the same thing happen in other parts of the world? And of course, I don't know as much. But from what I do know, the kinds of things that happen in the U.S. that I chronicle over a course of a couple of hundred years happen to different degrees and in slightly different ways, mainly in North North in the U.K., of course, and, and Australia, Canada. And Germany, Scandinavia, for the you know that more than the southern European countries and the the countries that dominate by the church. Although you see the influence everywhere to different degrees.
0: Yeah, and because we in other like Australia, for example, and Europe is also we take so much from US. It's kind of like the yeah. leader in yeah. these these trends and these influences. So that's yeah the big thing and essentially this it's it's about how ancient philosophy of vedanta and the mind body methods of yoga have affected millions of westerners and radically altered the religious landscape and so wonderful yes. historic recount and and it is really detailed specifically to to us because it, it starts with these initial influences from the 1800s to the present and it includes influence of public intellectuals meditation hatha yoga which is the more asana movement philosophy pundits what was started in the U.S. Uh, the arts the, that was one of my favorite the music, poetry, filmmakers. I'm so glad style. you
1: mentioned that because <laughs> I'm about to teach a course on that online uh-huh. with Hindu University of America. Because whenever I speak about this and write about it, I get I love the part about the arts, about the poets and novelists, and especially <laughs> the musicians, especially mm. people like the Beatles and certain yeah. jazz musicians. And everybody, it perks up and I never have enough time. So I'm doing a whole course on it, starting in October.
0: Ah, Beautiful. I'm going to come back to that. Um, But before that, I think let's let's just start at the very beginning. For those who don't know, what is Veda for you?
1: Well, Veda means essentially knowledge. And um, the Vedas is a term that's applied to what we think of as the world's oldest sacred texts, the four Vedas of India that are, you know, so old that people argue about the exact dating and, and what the boundaries of the so-called Vedic period are, but they evolved over time and took, the form in, you know, more, what well, you say modern, you know, a thousand years or two thousand instead of five or ten, um, the, the Vedic, the Vedas as such, you know, didn't have that great an influence. What really came to the West was uh, the system of philosophy known as Vedanta and the principles and practices of yoga and a lot of tantra that was often undervalued underestimated in its its uh, effects and when we think of vedanta the focal point are the the three texts that are uh, at the heart of what we think of as indian philosophy that came at the end of the Vedic period and so Vedanta means the end of the Veda or the culmination of the Vedas and so the Upanishads and the Bhagavad Gita and the Brahma Sutras form the sort of core understanding that very complex system of Vedanta and all its variations came to represent and that's really what came to the West and in modern forms. And, of course, yoga in the form of uh, yoga teachers and yoga masters and gurus and swamis, all of whom had different orientations, different approaches. But taken as a whole, you can really trace the influence going back before any emissaries from India ever came to the West. But when translations and commentaries of books like the ones I mentioned started to find their way into uh, parts of America and the UK and Germany, especially. So it affected the romantic poets and the idealists and the American transcendentalists in the 19th century. And then the sort of process accelerated with the growth of uh, communications and transportation technologies. And then people from India the famous gurus uh, came and had an impact, had a cumulative impact, until you know things really exploded in the sixties and seventies, and it, the process continues to this day. Uh, and it, the influence is both obvious and, in many ways, less perceptible. And one of my jobs was to ferret out the influences that are not so obvious, like how it affected people's attitudes toward religion and everything from healthcare to psychology to the arts and so forth.
0: Yeah, and you did that so it's well. It's quite
1: an adventure. Um,
0: when was this book written? Remind me.
1: It came out in 2010. Okay. And I spent the previous couple of years working on it. So this is
0: going to be yeah, really interesting because um, I want to kind of extend even 12 years later where we are today just that the change because a lot of it is as you said 60s 70s but even even 80s 90s and and now we've got I don't know how much you're researching this topic these days or recently because now we've got social media and just there's so much more information everyone has the potential to teach <laughs> and there asks quote-unquote perhaps more gurus or more teachers I mean it's what's the book shows, like, it's such an extensive historical account. It's wonderful on, and so many people that I didn't know about being a younger man, perhaps, but, and how they influenced the next quote unquote gurus. Like, but it's so interesting today. Like, it seems almost like for those who want to become a teacher, it's, it may be harder to quote unquote make it or be have a following because there's such perhaps more. People and it's not like <laughs> I don't know. Like, and then of course it's easier. No. But it's, it's how do you think about? Because we had people mm. like Deepak Chopra, who you did a good good account on, and he had Oprah, and he, or even before that, there was Maharishi, Mashogi and all these other ones who. There wasn't internet, so it was like, yeah, it's just, no. it's just a very interesting contrast between then and today. What do you think about that?
1: Oh, it's true. And and one of the interesting things about that, I mean, if I were to update American Veda now, the, there are a couple of things that I didn't, you know, couldn't foresee and, and weren't as important when I wrote the book, but subsequent developments. One would be the explosion of interest in Hatha yoga and the, you know, sort of appearance of yoga studios on every street corner, at least before COVID. Now, you know, many of them have gone under because, you know, you couldn't conduct classes. That would be one. The other would be the tremendous growth and assimilation of people of Indian descent in Western countries, especially in America, and, and the impact that just their presence and their building of temples and educational outreach and so forth has had. And the third would be social media. It's it's extraordinary. And and you're right, you know, on the plus side, everybody has easy access. You know, I often joke that when I first heard about the Bhagavad Gita, and I was a student in the 60s, I heard about it because I read Thoreau, Henry David Thoreau's Walden. And he writes about it in there. And I said, oh, I, I want to check that out. I couldn't find a copy and I, and I was living in New York City. I had to go to an esoteric bookstore to get a copy. Now you can just you know, click on your mouse or your phone and then you have a dozen translations in, in a few seconds. And so that's the accessibility is extraordinary. You know, part of the time I was writing about these things, no one had these books. You know, they were being imported from the UK to, you know, certain intellectual elite in America. And then, you know, in the when the early gurus came, you know, they were traveling by railroad and, you know, there was no television to advertise and all that. And then radio came in and that was a big deal. And in the sixties and seventies, some of the better-known gurus, like you mentioned, Maharishi Mahesh Yogi, in the aftermath of the Beatles taking up, you know, his uh, teachings, there was a big explosion. But what did the explosion consist of? Front-page articles in magazines, the occasional uh, television program, and uh, he, all these gurus who came, uh, they. If they had outreach as part of their mission, they wanted to reach people and they took advantage of whatever the technology was at that time. So in the 1920s, Yogananda used radio. It was just, it was the newest thing, you know, and mail order uh, through the, you know, the mail system. And then in the 60s and 70s, they were using, you know, what would look like very primitive, huge video Uh, boxes of you know to make cassettes of of their talks and stuff and now of course everybody you know would you know the teachers are on YouTube and podcasts like yours and mine and so accessibility is a big thing the downside you kind of alluded to is anybody can hang up a shingle and so to speak or start a YouTube channel and claim to be a teacher and many of them, you know, are out to make a buck and they don't necessarily have credentials or proper training. So, you know, that that's the the downside of this. And, and also, as you said, there are some people who are very deserving of having an audience, but don't have the marketing skills or the good karma. <laughs> and so they can't you know mm-hmm. attract the following that they yeah. might deserve, you know so <laughs>
0: yes yeah, so it's really it's it's essentially the same thing. It's just more i guess as the consciousness has evolved like collective consciousness has expanded over the decades and more people have become interested in then there are more teachers because we they're still max max using the current technology to a maximum like you said, they were using radio. You're going to was using radio. Then, then they were using TV. So, but now I guess there's just more, more teachers and more people. It's, it's an interesting yeah. thing.
1: And yeah, you know, but they, you know, more people can easily find access to it now, yeah. you know, uh, without a great deal of difficulty. You, you don't have to, if you have a favorite teacher because you read a book or something, or your friend tells you about that person, You don't have to wait till that person comes to your town. If ever, you can find them on YouTube and you can find them, you know, on uh, whatever other media they use.
0: Yeah, there's in some of the traditions that I am involved with or one of them particularly, there's a bit of controversy on whether you can teach online or not. It's, (laughs) um, (laughs) you know, how authentic and all these things which has its value. There some things, of course, which is... There's nothing
1: new about that either, Doan, because, you know, Yogananda was heavily criticized for taking some of the teachings that in India at that time, in the 1920s, it would be a direct guru Mm, student transmission or teaching. But he was interested in meeting, uh, reaching many more people. So he used... He created a correspondence course, which was you know, <laughs> the height of technology at the time, and put some teachings in that and took a lot of flack for it. Mm. At the same time, certain teachings were still only given in person, yeah. and that remains the case today. Yeah. Now you can find some of those teachings online, but not all of it. Some you know, is reserved for a special yeah. kind of instruction.
0: That, that's good, and I think that and one guy was like, well, if Buddha was alive today, he would be pumping the internet. He would be like putting it all out on Instagram. So it, I, think it's, it's, <laughs> Maybe. I think it's about how how can these traditions adapt to the current state when they didn't foresee or where their guru didn't for, talk about this because it wasn't That's at right. all in the thing. And it's interesting for them to use their discrepancy of, okay, yes. again, is this appropriate to, to share online?
1: And then that's a key issue, the yeah. ongoing adaptation to a new culture, a new period of time, new technologies. And you see that in every guru who ever left India and came to the West. The ones who reached people had great skill at adapting to the new culture and new values new personalities new systems and at the same time being faithful to the traditional teachings and not distorting them in the name of reaching more people not diluting them yeah and and you see it in their work as their time goes by oh People in America value self-improvement. Uh, you know, they want uh, better health. So these methods, I'll reach them by telling mm-hmm. them about that. Mm-hmm. But they won't dilute the teachings. That's Some bad. people, on the other hand, in their zeal to reach more people will make adaptations that do dilute the teachings. And you see that in yoga studios all the time where the public image of yoga is that it's a form of exercise. And I'm sure many of your listeners know it's a whole lot more than that. And, you know, yoga's good for your health. Yes, but it's a whole lot more than that. And the good yoga teachers, the skilled ones, the knowledgeable ones, will give the student what they need and what they're looking for and tell them there's more Mm. and lead them, point them in that direction. And that's what the the really skilled gurus were able to do.
0: And I think that also is a good point for other practitioners who are perhaps criticizing or judging other practitioners or teachers who are doing this because I get it. I I recently, we have something coming up called Navratri, the Nine nights of Mother Divine. And I wanted to teach a lot of people about it. So my whole marketing or and we're doing a free webinar and I just promoted it as, you know, better there's seasonal changes and this is the biggest seasonal change of the year. And it's an opportunity for health. And even my media manager was like, but you didn't mention anything about the goddess, the Devi. <laughs> like, I'm like, no, but I, I will. <laughs> like I'm not going to nod on to that, yeah. but this is how I'm presenting it. And, and then, they'll understand the connection between rhythms mm-hmm. and the devi. So yeah, I think it's a good thing to just, just cause someone's advertising in a certain way or marketing to not judge or criticize because you don't know how they're teaching that. And of course not everyone is, like you said, people are altering the, that actual teachings in the courses are not done according to the proper
1: tradition. And, and that's the fine line mm-hmm. that people who care about the authenticity and effectiveness of these teachings have to tread. And and it's it's right there in the Bhagavad Gita. It's about uh, reaching people at the level there are. You know, the, the term in Sanskrit is upaya, skillful means of teaching. And I, you see it when, like I had to research all the teachers. And you see it in Yogananda. Watched, I watched, I, I looked at all the advertisements for his public presentations and you see, you know, after he was here a little while, he realized, oh yeah, I better, you know, I'll get people interested by saying yoga for business success. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Or super consciousness for, you know, better health or whatever gets people in the door, but then you give them the opportunity for the authentic teachings.
0: And and Maharishi Yogi did that very well, and you explained, I mean,
1: that... Oh, yes, and I was was there at the time watching it, and he came here talking about higher consciousness and enlightenment and all these things, and then some research was done, and it turned out that uh, meditation... Uh, had certain measurable effects and the next thing you know it was a method for stress reduction and he wrote that he didn't deny it he didn't look down on it he said oh that that's a finding science people value science so we'll talk about that yeah. and then adapt the higher teachings yeah. to that context
0: yeah it, it was a very i always want to touch on the, this part because the, book, the early on in the book it's chronological order basically and or at least it starts to be and so the first is 1800s even and, and so early people who i've never heard of who are apparently very famous um who who are they feel like
1: <laughs> well you were, in australia you might not no, know ralph but, waldo emerson yeah
0: the emerson and these people who then realize wow these guys are but every
1: affliction. american yeah. student reads their stuff in a literature class or a history class or something so they're icons here Hmm.
0: so for me that was you know i was chugging on in the book it wasn't too much (laughs) but just to be honest i'm an honest guy and then i mean look i'm i'm also um part of this maharishi's tradition so it was exciting but and you were as well you you learned transcendental you are a teacher transcendental meditation but that part of the book i mean it's so exciting. It really is a radical explosion of Vedic yeah. wisdom entering the West, and even for those who aren't part of the tradition, like it's very clear, it's well known that Maharishi Meshi Yogi, he not only shared Vedas with the West, but he really revived it in India as well. Like he, with Ayurveda, with Vedic architecture, Stavatsya Veda, with Vedic astrology, all these aspects of the Veda, which is as Philip said, knowledge, he really revived and. It's just it's just a wonderful part of the book. I mean, he it's like you're having these things who are slowly going and then
1: Murray she just like explodes. And it it's fun to write about and think about and it's exceptionally so because the Beatles and Rock and Roll played such a big role in yeah, that. And yeah. and you you know by that, and so you know, there's film footage of that, and interviews with John and George about their meditation experiences, and you see it in their lyrics, and you you know, and and so you get to even people born way after 1968, and and the, the heart when that was really happening, can get a sense of it now because of technologies, and it's it's. And for me, I I mean, I lived through that, but researching my book, oh my God, I discovered so many things I didn't know before. And it was just such a delight, you know, to write about them and to give public presentations and, and bring in the Beatles music into it. It's just, you know, so much fun. And and then you discover it wasn't just rock and roll. It was jazz and classical music and Mm. people like John Coltrane and, you know, all kinds of incredible people, artists and philosophers and writers who were influenced by India uh, in ways that people don't fully appreciate.
0: Yeah. I want to compare Maharishi Yogi to Deepak Chopra because I think it's a good example, I feel, for for the purpose of comparing the 70s or around that time to the current present. Because we have Maharishi who reached millions of people and he was on the top TV shows and being interviewed. But again, there was not many other gurus at all at the time. And then today we have Deepak Chopra, who you wonderfully said in the book, I mean, he was close to Maharishi. He was perhaps about to be the new leader of the TM movement but went off on his own for other reasons. And then I love how your book said, but he had opera <laughs> and opera Like, yeah. So now we've got Austin Deepak, who is reaching millions and probably more than Maharishi did, maybe, but it's not as explosive because of the contrast, because Deepak's entering a market where people are already, you know, yeah. heard of meditation. And if-
1: Yes. And his, yeah, when Maharishi was doing what he did and when the Beatles took up TM, that was brand new in the minds of people. And if you look at the newspaper and magazine and TV coverage of it all, some of it was cynical, and of course, but some of it was what's going on here? What's the appeal? You mean India, this backward country? that, you know, uh, has something to offer people? You know, what's that about? Why would the Beatles, who are the most famous and rich young people in the world, take time off and go to a funky ashram in India when they can go anywhere and do anything? And so that became a curiosity. But you're right, now you know, if I were to sit on a park bench in you know Central Park or something and meditate, sitting with my eyes closed, no one would give me a second look. But in 1970, <laughs> that would have been very different. Yeah. Uh, and yeah. and so you know, if you told people, "Yeah, I start my day every day with a meditation," no one blinks an eye now. This just it become mainstream yeah. and and sometimes people say how come you know when a guru comes to a big city now it's there's no coverage of it well because it happens all the time and it yeah. happens so often over the last few decades it's not news you know it's not that big a deal yeah. so amma comes to you know Los Angeles or New York and 8000 people show up to be with her and it's a little article and you know, page 12 or something, you know, or unless a celebrity is part of it.
0: Yeah. That. Okay. It's a, it's a good point. I, so in the seventies, for example, Maharishi, was that just that explosive radical introduction, whether he, yeah, it's more common. Okay. Um, I just want to bring up one other guru before I talk about some patterns. and And that is, well, even just the book, Autobiography of Yoga by Yogananda. And, and you've got a book on Yogananda right behind you, which you've written. I mean, that book, we've interviewed a bunch of people on this podcast and well-known people, gurus. That book has influenced so many people. It's amazing. And you you can ask so many big gurus now of what got you started. And it was that book. So
1: Yes. I had the same exact experience when I was researching American Veda, I would talk to people and ask them about their spiritual lives and what got them interested in the teachings from India. If they mentioned the book, overwhelming number of people would mention Autobiography of a Yogi. The second most mentioned book was Ram Dass's Be Here Now. But when I interviewed Ram Dass, he mentioned Autobiography <laughs> of a Yogi. So that it's extraordinary. I just completed teaching a course on the autobiography of Yogi, where we go through the entire book and discuss them like a few chapters at a time. And it's extraordinary what people still, you know, after reading it a few times, I've read it you know, a number of times now for professional reasons, whereas in the first my first exposure, was in 1970 when I was a young seeker and it had a big impact on me. I never became a disciple of Yogananda, but there are millions of people who either did become students or who were led by that book to whatever teachings they found. It's an extraordinarily influential book, one of the the most influential spiritual books of, of the 20th century, and it continues to this day it was published in 1946 wow so you know and and it's it's really extraordinary and and there's a lot of reasons for it but it's it's unique most you know gurus i mean he was a renunciate he was a, a monk uh and most people like that and and most of the gurus who came to the west were renunciates uh, they don't talk about their personal lives and their families and and their History and all that, uh, in quite the way uh, Yogananda did. They usually, you know, leave that out, and so it—it's extraordinary stuff. And you know what he—there's uh, a lot to be said about it. And the reason I wrote a biography of Yogananda is how much he left out of that book. <laughs> and uh, but there's so much in those, you know, five hundred pages or so that there's something for every seeker, whether you know, and you find that you probably know, when you talk to people who are influenced by that book, they do. It's for different reasons. But it's, it's an eye opener. It's an eye opener. Yeah. Yeah. Because
0: one of the just for those who don't know, um, it's, it's an autobiography of a yogi. (laughs) And it's a lot of it is his experience of other people that he meets of divine yes. human circumstances and capabilities which some people call siddhis so it's it's that's why it's so eye opening because you're experiencing these supernatural capabilities from human and spiritual experiences so yeah and and the, the you wrote a whole chapter on it the chapter's called the yogi in the autobiography I love it. Like the, the, All of the chapter titles are so
1: creative. Oh, thank you. I worked very hard to get good chapter <laughs> titles so good. In, in American Veda. But, but the, the, you know, I have a whole chapter on Yogananda in that book because yeah. he was one of the more important ones. Yeah. Like there's a whole chapter on Maharishi and a whole yeah. chapter on Vivekananda. The other gurus get parts of chapters. Yeah. But when I was researching Yogananda and his impact, Um, Having read Autobiography of a Yogi, having talked to a million people about their experience with it, what I realized was I really found his personal story, the sort of narrative of his life, fascinating. And then, you know, realizing how much he left out of the autobiography, I chose to follow American Veda. It, it, It just felt one chapter was not enough. Beautiful. <laughs> so hence i so wrote another book
0: yeah how how long did it take you to um write this book and do research because I, I was amazed you there's some photos in the book and you're interviewing sri sri ravishanka like you've yeah, you've yeah. you've interviewed all these amazing people well done like,
1: <laughs> i feel blessed having yeah. been able to do that and uh because of america veda i've gotten to know even more people because the book you know like people like you, but also people in India, you know, and, and oh, I, you wrote that book, come and see Guru So-and-So. And it's just, it's just been extraordinary. Yeah. And uh, yeah, it does take a long time to research those books. Um, and, you know, it, it becomes a very practical thing. But thank God the Internet was, mm. you know, I thank Google in my acknowledgments <laughs> yes. because you know, I'm old enough to remember what it was like to do serious research, even when I was in college. And, you know, you'd spend hours and hours in the back rooms of libraries, combing through books and, you know, stacks of magazines just to hopefully find something. And now you you just click the mouse and, and the whole world opens up to you. And, it was extraordinary but you the, the one of the hardest things was stopping the research so i could write the book yeah because it, it's so intoxicating mm. you know to go down every avenue and find out more and learn more and after a while you realize i just spent two hours reading this great stuff and it's there's no room for it in my book i better be a little bit you know more discerning. Oh, yeah
0: and, and you did really well like because uh, i there's so much you could have elaborated on and added and you know you didn't get too much into the to the cult into the sexual allegations with all these things which was which i think was nice you touched on it i mean later probably after this book there was a whole movie on bikram you my friend actually was a director oh my Eva god Onan, and that, was, it,
1: that issue there were sexual scandals and allegations around almost all the gurus who yes. gained prominence, especially in the sixties and seventies when, you know, during the hippie year and I had to address it and there's a whole chapter on it. And I always say it, it's the shortest chapter in the book and the hardest one to write. And it continues to this day. I'm still learning new things and, um,
0: there's a whole conversation to be had about that. It, it's to do with the nature of cults and following, and anyway, another, another time. <laughs> but I, I just want to touch on a, a really beautiful thing which you brought up and which I feel. And we actually spoke about it just now, sorry, with Yogan, uh, with I think it was with Yogananda, or, or maybe, but it was the notion and the phenomenon of all these different modalities mutually supporting and uplifting each other. And I experience it as a Ayurvedic, we have an Ayurvedic clinic in Australia. So for example, someone learns Buddhism and that ultimately opens them up to be receptive to a Vedic astrologer or come to our clinic. And this is a really wonderful thing, which there's this dispute. There is some competition and dispute among different traditions. My tradition is better, whatever. But, or even within the same tradition, you're not, we said earlier, you're not doing the proper teaching but i i've always thought this is i really haven't liked this energy at all because i'm like guys come on we're all working towards spiritual spirituality we're all working towards god like people are blaming me for doing something and like down the road someone's selling mcdonald's <laughs> you know what i mean like it's just <laughs> but but it is a beautiful thing this mutual thing you-
1: one of the things that comes out when you look into the the, the phenomena i have is one, people don't fully appreciate how diverse and multifaceted what we think of as Indian philosophy or even just the, the realm of yoga, just the realm of Vedanta. There's so much variety and different angles and different orientations, so many different methods, you know, you, you find uh, you go to ashrams and you go to different lineages and they all meditate, but they all do it differently. And even Hatha yoga teachers trained by the same yoga master will teach it differently. And all these different approaches, people in our ignorance tend to think of them as competitive, but they're just, all variations on the same central theme of self-realization and, and awakening and achieving union, as in the you know full definition of yoga as, as union with uh, with the cosmos, with the universal intelligence that goes by so many names. And all these methods and all these orientations are just different facets of the same light. And if you are discerning in your own quest, you will pick and choose the methods that are complementary and work well for you. And most of the teachers recognize that. They don't feel in competition. They say, "Oh, he does it that way; we do it this way."
0: Exactly, I mean, not to condemn others. I mean, I see it so much. Like, oh, that meditation teacher's only teaching the course in three days; they should be doing it in four days, or they're not doing the ceremony, the puja correctly, and uh, they're bad. They are not contributing to society. In fact, they're doing wrong, and <laughs> like come on man and like this is that's this the, the is why step.
1: religions get corrupted <laughs> yeah. over time uh-huh. and, and it's
0: like <laughs> and it's like that's the first step for that person that's their karma and that's ultimately going to be like lead them to if, if you are really that higher authentic more intricate detailed teacher then that's that will be their next step so and they wouldn't have got there without that so
1: you know what my experience is it's not the the gurus and the leading teachers who are that way, it's, it's the uh, devotees.
0: Yes, yes. They're the
1: ones who create orthodoxy and narrower perspective in their zeal to protect their lineage and <clears throat> project their lineage as the, the best or the only the teachers themselves are not usually that Absolutely. way. Absolutely.
0: That's also my experience. And especially if the teacher is above that, if they really are that spiritual um, evolved individual, then they're not going to be caught up about that stuff. And it usually is the, the close devotees, like the ones who are. Do you also see that? Like the ones that are right there. Cool. So, yeah, I highly recommend everyone to to read um, American Veda and, and check out Philip Goldberg's other books. Um, There's just, yeah, it's good. Good history and do you do you ever think of writing or an outdated one or maybe
1: down the track i have thought of it and if honestly okay. if if i i thought commercially it would make sense and you know pay the bills for the amount of time it would take to do it yeah, yeah, yeah. i i would do it <laughs> but at this point it doesn't seem yeah. like that maybe in five years who knows or somebody will step up maybe it'll be you dylan who writes australia veda australian <laughs> veda it's funny yeah it's, it's people say to me "Well, you should do a book about the same thing in europe and i say well you know come up with a, a nice uh, research budget and i'd be very happy to travel around europe doing the research yeah
0: i mean if you were to do like i don't think it needs to be done because i i really see america as that initial thing but it would be so deep like because it, it's really detailed on how that came to America like that individual came to America and to do that for Australia or Europe especially Australia like that would be very niche I mean to say it's very niche like people won't know if you not so yeah but it's really interesting how I'm glad you you still touched on people I mean 2012 not that toward 2010 not that um far away, not that long ago, but you still had Amma, the hugging saint in there. You still had Sadhguru and you had Shri Sri Ravi Shankar, but who by now in these 10, 12 years have just gone That's huge. Right. So it, it'd be interesting just to like, just, it doesn't have to be a whole second, but just to like the growth of well, what. Well, Sadhguru
1: is a, a, a very good example of that because I, he was so new in 2009 or 10 when I was writing this. That I, I I think I mentioned him, but it, you did it mention, my, yeah. And I've since you know interviewed him on you know YouTube. I've been to his ashram, and i you know he's got an enormous following now. I've had him on my podcast <laughs> twice, I think, mm. and it's been extraordinary to see you know that evolution. Yeah. And Sri Sri too, you know, I uh, because I knew some of his close disciples. I, you know, I interviewed him for the book, and there's a picture of us together with me talking to him. And in the subsequent years, you know, I've taken tour groups to his ashram and all that stuff. And if you go to India, he's huge in India; oh, it's
0: amazing, and you know,
1: fairly well known in in the US, probably Australia. I think it's but the biggest movement
0: de- right now in the world. Out of all organizations, the art of living. Ocean, I think so. Um, He hasn't got the most um, Instagram followers, though, but he's got
1: (laughs) that. And, you know, they all start small. It's fascinating. You know, Yogananda's first, you know, talks were in people's living rooms. Mm. You know, Amma, you know, eight or 10,000 people a night show up to see her. Now, but I know people who were, you know, who met her when, when, you know, there were 15 people in the room. Amazing. First time I, I saw Sri Sri, it was in the uh, late 80s in Los Angeles. And there were, you know, maybe 12 people, you know, showed Beautiful. up to see him. Wow.
0: Yeah. And so you you conduct, tell us about your Yatra trips, your pilgrimages around oh, yeah. India. Yeah, brief. I mean, you, yeah, it is what I just said, but I mean, have you got any favorite spots
1: of favorite? Yatra?
0: Yeah, favorite spots of pilgrimage, your personal favorites. What places do you love?
1: Rishikesh is very close to my heart, Mm -hmm. you know, and um, we had to curtail our tours because of COVID, but we're doing another one in February, you know, unless there's another uh, wave of, you know, COVID. And uh, some of the people who were with us in the past are coming back because they want to go back to Rishikesh. And this time we'll be going also to Varanasi. Those two places I never get tired of. They're both on the Ganges, at different geographical parts of India, both by the Holy River. And uh, they're extraordinary places. But this time also we're going to Dharamsala, where the Dalai Lama is, and uh, to Kurukshetra, which is the site uh, where the Bhagavad Gita is said to have taken place and uh i'm looking forward to it we we've done different itineraries in the four trips we've already done one to south india the others in the north and we go to places associated primarily go to places associated with the teachers i write about in american veda but also to historical sites and the the great temples and all that and yeah, you should meet us in Rishikesh. We'll go to He's uh, uh, what they call in Rishikesh, the Beatles. <laughs> yeah, sure,
0: sure. <laughs> um, yeah, we'll, we'll find from February, I won't be there, but we'll see future, or your future tours Because you do two a year, right? Is that?
1: No, no, oh, that would be too okay. much. Uh, we, we were doing maybe one every year or every 15, okay. 16 months. And then everything stopped for COVID. So for those so. who are
0: interested, can see philipgoldberg.com. The, yeah. the information is there, and yeah, Kurukshetra, I've never, I've never been there.
1: Neither have I. This mm-hmm. will be my first time. Yeah.
0: And and these days, like, because I spend a lot of time in India, I go every year, and I don't really travel for tourists. Kind of, I don't, it's different. Like, if I go, I know now I'm limited in the time to travel because I have a lot more work to do and learning, in, in the over clinic that I'm at. And if I go somewhere, it's to a temple. It's to a high energy vortex of this beautiful vibration which you can very tangibly and easily feel and that's what i want to do where do you go oh well I'm now because i'm in hyderabad i'm getting to know andhra pradesh and tamil nadu so just uh, about six weeks ago i was in rameshwaram and, ah, and great place oh my god that was my first time and i spent spent about yeah. five days there and for those who don't know it's on the peninsula it's on like a peninsula on the east coast of india which is you go to the very tip it's only nine kilometers over the sea to sri lanka and for those who know the ramayana the great epic it is like living that in person and it's just amazing how tangible like oh this is where rama built the lingam and this is where rama worshiped the the nine planets and you can see them still there the rocks that uh, under the water and this is where the floating rocks are and they're floating rocks still (laughs) like it's just amazing it's beautiful So, yeah. I'm, and
1: all the temples of Tamil Nadu, the oh, temple towns like Madurai absolutely. and others. Yes, yeah. we went to
0: Madurai and Girl, you. and Yeah, Tirupati. And I've had my yeah, time on
1: uh, our South India tour. We, we spent time at Tiru, Tiruvannamalai mm, at that's Ramana's another place yeah. and in uh, Pondicherry at Sri Aurobindo's. And ah, these, are, these are very sacred. Yeah,
0: yeah. Beautiful. So, any anything else i actually want to just quickly bring up one one thing perhaps we can end with it because it's very relevant to modern times and and that is this surge in in indians who were born in india or who were who were born in the west but from indian descent who are getting this invigorated sparking interest in the vedas and it's not like they would listen to me but not their grandfather traditional indian right right and and it's you know They told me to do this. I don't really know why, and I'm not. I have some resilience to it. I'm now an educated, very westernised to some extent, Indian. But now these westerners, or even these Indians as well, these new Indian teachers from the this newer generation, are teaching with this Western approach of understanding the essence of the teaching, giving a bit more of intellectual understanding. And I see it in the Ayurvedic industry of all these. Ayurvedic doctors, these who are recently, you know, these young who who teaching, and and they're getting a lot of. So it's so, a so beautiful phenomenon which is happening.
1: You're absolutely right. I've had the same experience, and at first it was really astonishing to me, but then you know, because I'd meet people of Indian descent in America, and many of whom were born here, the you know, first second generation Americans, and they didn't have much interest in you know, what they call grandma's religion or something. But then they hear Westerners speak about it in rational terms and in very pragmatic terms. No, no, these teachings have a positive effect on your nervous system and your brain. And there's research and, you know, do these practices and your life improves. And it makes a difference to them. It's not just you know some superstitious thing as as they would have seen it or it's not just you know something being imposed on them when i when american veda came out in india in uh, 2013 i think i did a one month tour in india to you know sponsored by a, a foundation and I was in like 18 different cities speaking two, three times a day. Wow. Amazing. And 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 they wanted me, especially, I said, why? I was curious, but I, they had me booked in schools a lot. And I said, why? They said, we, we want to show our young people that these traditional teachings have value in the modern world. They're all busy emulating Americans and, you know, Eating fast food and wearing Western clothing, and you know, being enamored of the computer technology and all that. And you know, we want to modernize, but they—they think all this is backward, and they won't listen to us. But a, an American coming here and telling them how much Americans appreciate the traditional teachings of India and how practical we have found them to be in the sense of personal transformation and and growth. That's why we want you to, we want it to come from you because they're not listening to us. I just found that mind boggling. But, you know, I hope I rose to the occasion. I was reluctant at first. It's like, why should I be the one to do this? But, you know, that's the way it is. And I guess, you know, that's young people in every tradition, I suppose, you know. I know Christians who came, who rejected their own tradition, but when they read Yogananda's take on Jesus, they come back to it with different eyes and say, oh, maybe there's something to this.
0: You, and you spoke about that in the book and not just Christianity, but and I've had that experience and I people around me of that's so beautiful. This is why the Vedic and Vedanta really changed the religious landscape in the West because it gave people a spiritual experience and got them out of the dogma of religion that they were brought in, and they then can connect back to their religion. That's right. If they choose, if to, they choose to, and if
1: it appeals to them, and and I've seen it over and over and over again, mostly in America with Christians and and to a lesser extent Jews. But I I wouldn't be surprised if Americans born into Islam also found the same thing and found their way to the great, uh, you know, mystical Sufi teachings, for example, because, you know, through in the same way, because, you know, essentially what the revolution of the spiritual landscape is the movement away from dogma and toward personal experience of the divine. Yes. And the the acknowledgement, that's core Vedanta, that there are many, if not infinite number of pathways to the, you know, up the mountaintop Absolutely. of self-realization. That is is such a welcome message to people that spirituality is practical mm. and not antithetical to modern life or life in the material world. This is... This you changes know, people,
0: it's, and and it also gives compassion to their current religion, to their family. So it's just it completely really shifts it, um, shifts perspective, may, opens them up to okay, maybe I can explore this and be open. I've had the same experience coming from a Jewish background, right? so it's yeah. it's amazing, and it's interesting how Vedanta did it. You know, it's not, it's not. The other parts, even if it's a more spiritual, quote-unquote, part of the religion, whether it's um, the Kabbalah or it's the, the other mystical Christianity aspects that, or the Sufism, like, that's not as influential as the Vedas have been.
1: No, yet. and partly it's because the essence of the Vedanta, you can even say the essence of Hinduism, and of and Buddhism in a certain way, the, the traditions that came out of the Vedic culture in ancient India, at the core is this notion that there are many paths and one truth. So the exclusivity mm, yeah. uh, that afflicts the Western traditions and the sense of superiority and colonization and all that, that, that is ecumenical diversity and all that is baked into the cake of the of the vedic tradition so whatever form it takes that's present and that respect and that orientation toward the inner experience as opposed to belief systems and everything i mean i often say there were all these famous gurus who came here to reach Americans and, and Buddhist masters and all that. None of them ever asked anybody to convert, yeah. let alone coerce them into converting. You know, it was keep to your own tradition. Take whatever aspect of what I'm bringing that appeals to you and deepens your, your spirituality. You don't have to become a Hindu. You don't have to become a Buddhist. These are universal teachings you can think of them as a form of uh, psychology or you know a system of science of consciousness or something it's they're not antithetical to your belief system you can be an atheist you can be a devout uh, christian you could be an orthodox jew and these teachings can help you and it turns out to be true because i've interviewed people in all those walks of you know all those ways of being yeah
0: beautiful What any anything? What are your plans for the future? Any projects you got underway, or
1: I am, I just recently moved from Los Angeles to the East Coast. uh, And so I've been caught up in putting our house together. But I'm working on a novel. I'm working on another nonfiction book. That will be right up your alley, but I'm not going to tell you what it is. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, my podcast, Spirit Matters, continues, and it's all free. And I would invite your listeners to absolutely tune in and go to our archive. You'll find a lot of great interviews with very wise people and uh, my, I'm organizing my next tour. So I've, I'm, I'm a busy boy. I'm right. teaching classes, I'm doing courses online, uh, mostly for Hindu University of America, like the one coming up in October about the arts and how artists and writers and musicians and so forth were influenced by the teachings of India and incorporated it into their work and transmitted it to folks like us and in- uh,
0: I have to mention a part about that because it was one of my favorite parts of the book, and it was you were sharing about the drug culture in the seventies and the Mm, marijuana. And, and it was a point of Ravi Shankar, the famous sitar player at his concert. (laughs) And he, he literally, I don't know, he stopped or he's just got everyone. And he told them off for being stoned, essentially. What, what did he say? He said something like, Oh,
1: I I was present at one. (laughs) Okay. It was like, he was tuning up and, and everything and people were, you know, and he stopped and said, And this is like 1967 or eight. He had just become very famous and people were coming by the thousands to see him. And he said, I'm I was told that a lot of you young people are getting high taking drugs because you think it'll be a better experience. He said, no, it won't (laughs) clean your system come fresh with, you know, open eyes and, you know, and all that. He was very opposed to it. And everybody was like, as I said in the book, you could hear the groan of like, oh, bummer. This, this old guy's guy telling us not to get. bummer,
0: what have I done? <laughs> it's good. Just that influence is great. It's like, oh, that's all you need. Now the next constant I won't come stone, perhaps. Okay, great. Well, thanks, Phil. It's been really fun to talk to you. And we'll we'll have everything in the show notes. People can check out your tours, your books. And yeah, I'm excited to hear about these upcoming books.
1: When it's posted, send me the links and I'll share. Will do. All right.
0: Pretty awesome stuff. Philip Goldberg, good man. If you want to check out his stuff, remember, you can check out philipgoldberg.com and join one of his yathras if you want. Also check out Mahasoma. They do awesome Uh, the collective of meditation teachers in Australia, they do amazing yathras, pilgrimages to India. I'm yet to do one, probably will, might even do one by now, I get asked all the time, but yeah, there's some really good things you can do, whether it's in India or other places around the world. But until next time, my friend, enjoy.